This is Drew Kaiser, and you're listening to Wide Margins, episode 34, The Perplexing Will of God. Today, as I announced last week, we're going to start a new series on the life of Jacob I've named Favored Cheat. Why Favored Cheat? It's a weird title, I know. There's a good reason for it, one having to do with his name. The name Jacob means cheat or supplanter or deceiver. And throughout this whole story, you're going to see how Jacob did his share of manipulating, uh, deceiving, lying to get his way. Uh, He had a hard time in the beginning trusting the Lord and just letting God take care of things, which is something I think that all of us can relate to. It's one of the reasons I love Jacob, because like all the Bible characters, he is presented with all of his flaws intact. Nothing is hidden from us. We can see him, warts and all. And that's what we need to see. These mythological and fictional characters that that are perfect, they don't match up with real life. There was only one perfect human, and that was Jesus Christ. Jacob is the everyman. He's like all of us, and so we relate to him. And he's not the only one in this story who has a problem with lying and cheating. His mother does her share of it. His uh, father-in-law and wives and children, they all, before the story is over, will be lying and hurting each other and cheating each other and deceiving each other in all kinds of ways. But there's hope throughout the story because of the other part of the title. It's not just a story about a cheat. It's a story about a favored cheat. God is all through this with his marvelous mercy and grace and his favor And it took Jacob a long time to realize that God loved him and had shown favor upon him. And and I think the knowledge of the grace of God is what made it possible for Jacob to start trusting him and relying upon him. Later in his life, he would say, according to Genesis chapter 32, verse 10, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown your servant. Jacob's a compelling character, and today we're going to talk about the perplexing will of God as we start the story off. You're going to see the story begin in a struggle, and it's a physical struggle because it has to do with a pregnancy. Jacob's mother is pregnant with himself and his brother. She had twins, and there's also a spiritual struggle here, a struggle between the will of man and the will of God. And that struggle is really important. You may say, well, this isn't very relevant to me because I never struggle. I know whose will comes first, the will of God. And I always put my will underneath the will of God. Well, maybe you are like that, but I doubt it very seriously. I think all of us have this tension in our lives where we do struggle with the will of God and how that clashes sometimes against what we want to do. And if if you're not sure about that, just ask yourself, have you ever been frustrated or confused about unanswered prayer? How do you respond to that? Have you ever been praying for something so fervently and it makes so much sense to you and you can't imagine why the Lord would not grant you your requests? That's the kind of struggle I'm talking about here. Have you ever suffered a loss that is so painful that it's caused you to wonder why God would allow that kind of thing to happen. That's what I'm talking about. Are you in the middle of a big decision right now? 
and you you just don't know what God wants you to do. And you're asking, what is God's will for my life? That's the kind of struggle that you're going to see presented, played out in action in this first part of the story of the life of Jacob, the favored cheat, the perplexing will of God. We all deal with it, so I hope that this introduction to the life of Jacob will be helpful to you. And we're going to break it down in two ways. We're going to look at the will of man, and then we're going to turn to the will of God and hopefully learn how to rely on him more. The whole thing starts in Genesis chapter 25, verse 21, with a prayer from Isaac. Now listen to what Isaac prays. Isaac, Jacob's father, prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. It seems like all of the patriarchs struggled with infertility. Infertility is a very difficult problem. It's something that affects women, but also men as well. And in those days, it was especially hard for women because their identity was just tied up with the idea of their ability to bear children. That's not the way that it should have been, but a lot of people, especially men in the world, but women too in those days, looked upon a woman as your role in life is to bring children for your husband, particularly boys, but at least some children. And it seems like all the patriarchs dealt with this. Rebecca's mother-in-law, Sarah, did. Her daughter-in-law, Rachel, did. And Rebecca's dealing with it as well. And that's only naming a few of the women that you read about in Scripture who had this problem. So she's dealing with this barrenness. There's a humiliation that goes along with it in those days. It's very hard. She desperately wanted children. I'm sure she just wanted to be a mother. She didn't understand why. And then you have on top of all of that the covenant that God made with Abraham that said, your family's going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And it's going to come through your son Isaac, the husband of Rebekah. So she's got this tremendous pressure on her, you know, put upon her by her culture, but not only that, by this covenant. And if she isn't giving it all over to God, she is putting it all on herself. You know, everything relies on me. Can you imagine this? If if I don't bear a child, if I don't bear a son, then God's not going to be able to bring his promise to fulfillment through Abraham. And this is what this whole family I've been brought into wants. Tremendous amount of pressure. And it says that Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. Now, according to rabbinical tradition... He did this reluctantly and only after his wife, Rebecca, asked him to. You know, you read through these texts, especially Genesis, but a lot of the Old Testament texts, and and a lot of them in the New Testament too, and they're just details that you would love to know that are never revealed. And have you ever found yourself coming upon one of those and you asking, I I wonder what happened there, or I wonder wonder what happened next, wonder what became of this person. Uh, this person disappears, and I never hear about him again. And the the answer is it's not important to the overall theme of the Bible, so God didn't include it. He can't include every detail. This book is covering thousands of years of history in a very brief um, number of pages by comparison, so he can't tell everything. But you can bet, you can take it to the bank that 
If you ever have one of those questions, somebody through antiquity has speculated an answer for it. And in this case, that's that's what happened among the rabbis. They go through lengthy discussions about what Isaac prayed and how he came to pray those prayers. And legend has it that Isaac didn't follow in the footsteps of his father Abraham. Abraham was a man of prayer. He spoke with the Lord frequently. You don't have a lot of records of Isaac praying to the Lord at all. And so that may be part of what was behind that theory. You think about it, it makes sense. There was 20 years of infertility here, according to the text. Verse 20 says that Isaac was 40 when he married Rebekah. And then verse 26 says that he was 60 when she bore twins. So for 20 years, they were both dealing with this. And you can imagine that there had to come a time where Rebecca became frustrated and went to her husband and asked him to pray. Now, according to the rabbis, she went to Isaac and asked him to pray for her. And he said, this is your problem. You pray. And her answer is, I have been praying. Nothing has happened. I went to my friends and asked them to pray and nothing happened. So now I need you to pray. And he prayed, and the Lord granted his request. That's according to the non-inspired tradition of the rabbis. And we, we don't really know if there's any kernel of truth to that or not. I can tell you this. Isaac seems to be a person who by nature just went with the flow. He didn't want to upset the apple cart. And... uh There's an example of that. I think it's in the next chapter, in Genesis chapter 26, where he comes to the valley of Gerar. He was a nomad with flocks like his father, and he dug out the wells that his father Abraham had dug. They'd been filled in by the Philistines. So he got them operating again, and then the herdsmen of Gerar laid claim to them. They said, these are our wells. They had no right to them. They were Isaac's wells. But instead of fighting about it like his father might have, or his sons may have, he just picked up stakes, literally, and moved on to the next place. Dug new wells. The herdsmen of Gerar claimed those wells. And again, Isaac didn't fight. He just picked up stakes. He moved on. Finally, he came to another place where there was peace. That's how he operated. He didn't like to upset the apple cart. And prayer, when you really... Get involved in prayer. Truly commit to prayer. You get into some confusing, perplexing times, and things become very unpredictable. Now remember, we're talking about Isaac here, the son of Abraham, a man of prayer. What happened when Abraham prayed? He prayed for a son. He was a hundred years old, his wife ninety before the prayer was granted. And then, after the son had come, and Abraham thought everything's going to work out fine, the Lord comes to him, and he says, I want you to take your only son whom you love and offer him as a sacrifice to me on the mountain that I will show you. And Abraham, the man of prayer, took this same person we're talking about, Isaac, And he took him to the mountain, bundled up some firewood, tied Isaac up, 
raised a knife over his head, prepared to kill him, and the angel of the Lord stopped him and provided a substitute in his place. Isaac remembered that. Don't you think you would remember that? I don't care how young you were. You would remember that kind of thing. He might have had some PTSD or something, we would say today, over that kind of thing. Who wouldn't? And maybe that had made him fearful to get involved in this business of the covenant with God. Maybe he was just kind of keeping his distance as much as he could. No one knows for sure, but it doesn't seem that he prayed much. There's not a whole lot written about Isaac. He kind of kept his, kept his distance because prayer is a risky venture. And once you get involved in it, you're making commitments that will lead you into dark, I don't mean dark like evil, but dark as in confusing and perplexing places. The will of God can be a very confusing thing. And you have to have a lot of faith to go there. So Isaac, he had his own will in mind, which was just keep the peace, take it easy, so we don't have children. That's just nothing we can do anything about. And maybe at his wife's insistence, after 20 years, he finally prayed to the Lord and received his wife's greatest desire. Now, Rebecca prayed too. And you have to admire Rebecca. Here's something that I, I thought about. Her mother-in-law dealt with infertility, and what did she do? She, she got a concubine, this woman, Hagar, a hand, handmaiden, a, a servant, gave her to her husband, and he had a child by her. Her daughter, Rachel, and, and her daughter-in-law, Rachel, and daughter-in-law, Leah, both of them, resorted to concubines as well to produce children for their husbands when they couldn't. Rebecca never did that kind of thing. Concubines, I would, I would say that they really um, confuse the situation, Really can really tear a family up. Don't you think that'd be the case? Uh, I can't imagine a situation like that. And Rebecca wasn't going to resort to that. There were some things that were more important to her her relationship with her husband, her faith in God to bring this about, than shortcutting things and going for the instant gratification. So she didn't do that. And she meant well, and she prayed to the Lord, but I think she still had her will in mind, even though she thought she was thinking about the Lord's will. Look at the very next verse. We read verse 21. Now look at Genesis 25, verse 22. The children struggled. That word means clashed or even crushed within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Remember, this was before sonograms. She didn't know what in the world was going on. She'd never been pregnant before. She certainly had never had twins. And it didn't meet her expectations. This did not feel the way she always dreamed it would feel. What's happening to me? Her prayer is hard to translate. She could have been asking, If pregnancy is this difficult, why am I pregnant? What good is my life? Or she could have been inquiring about the meaning of the struggle in her womb. Like, if I'm supposed to be a part of God's chosen family, 
Why does this seem wrong? What does this mean? If you want to look to the Hebrew to try to figure out exactly what she's saying, you're going to be disappointed because in Hebrew, the literal reading is is cut off and it's clipped. It's something like, then why am I... And then there's just nothing. It's the kind of prayer that you would expect to hear from the lips of somebody in intense pain and fear and confusion. Have you ever thought you had it all figured out and then something surprising happened and you just didn't know what to say to God? That's what Rebecca's going through here. She just wanted children. She had prayed and God had answered her prayer, she thought, in the way that she was expecting. And then things were not the way she, she thought they would be. When Rebecca prayed to the Lord the second time, though, she had begun to consider his will. So we've looked at the will of man in the form of Isaac, who just wanted to keep the peace and status quo, in Rebecca, who was a mother who wanted children. And now we're going to turn to God's will, the perplexing will of God. When Rebecca inquired of the Lord, God revealed his will to her according to verses 23 and following. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days give, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. All his body was like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So there's a second prayer, and the answer that she received from that prayer came as two signs. There was an oracle, and then there was the birth itself. Now, the oracle was, two nations are in your womb. And there would be a struggle between the nations. And in the end, the older of the two nations would serve the younger. In other words, Esau would one day come to serve Jacob. Then there was the birth. And that was a really interesting thing. When Esau came out first, Jacob followed grabbing his heel as if he were trying to trip him up or pull him back into the womb. And so they named these boys Jacob and Esau. Esau means red. The The wording here is really interesting. The first, Moses said, came out red. The word Edom, which is the name of the nation that came from Esau. A nation that was located in ruddy or red sandstone hills. In the, the actual topography, the, the landscape, went together with the name and the coloring of this this ancestor, Esau. And all his body, it says, was like a hairy cloak. The word there is seer. Seer, S-E-I-R, became the name of the province in which the nation of Edom was located. So later on in Old Testament history, you'll see those words, Edom and seer. They're both applied to the land or the people that came from Esau, their ancestor. He was the oldest of the two twins. 
his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, and so they called him Jacob. Jacob's name meant heel, but it also had a metaphorical significance to it. Um, Lifting up the heel was an idiom in Hebrew for betraying someone. John remember when Judas uh, betrayed Jesus. John remembered Psalm forty-one, verse nine. My my own friend, my close friend, has lifted up his heel against me. That's employing the same figure of speech. Sometimes the heel was symbolic of dogging someone's steps. So Psalm forty-nine, verse five says, "Iniquity at my heels." You've got that idea as well. Later, Esau would point out the more figurative side of Jacob's name in Genesis uh, Genesis 27, verse 36, where he says, Is he not rightly named Jacob? He's cheated me these two times. He's using Jacob's name there as a verb. He cheated me. And that's why we're calling this favored cheat. Jacob is the favored cheat. And that was symbolized in the birth. So in the oracle, you have this strange turning things upside down and the older shall serve the younger and in the birth itself you have the younger child this is a, a remarkable thing holding on to the heel of his older brother as they come out of the womb they're like fighting even in the womb so god reveals his will to rebecca in these two ways but he left out a lot of details there's no explanation for example, was was this oracle predictive, or was it predestinating? Was was he foreseeing things just as they were, or was God intending to make these things happen? Which which one of those? And you could say it's really both. He saw on down the road what he and his sovereign will would bring to pass through these two people. You just don't know exactly what happened. We don't have all the answers. We don't know. But there should be no confusion over this point. What happens in the lives of Jacob and Esau and their families and everything that follows is not coincidence. It's a matter of the fulfillment of God's divine plan. For one thing, what happened later was unconventional in that the older did come to serve the younger. And that just didn't happen in ancient times. In ancient times, they followed the the idea of the firstborn being the principal descendant. When the father passed away, the birthright was given to the firstborn. A double portion of the inheritance was given to him. And he ran the family from that point forward until his death or until his uh, son might take it over. To further complicate matters, these were twins. So even if the prophecy had not stipulated that the older should serve the younger, figuring out who received the honors would be more difficult than a usual situation where there was some kind of clear sequence from one child to the other. Twins are the same age, and Jacob's clinging to Esau's heel, so they're kind of being delivered at the exact same time. I have little brothers who are twins, and they were born seven minutes apart. But if one is holding on to the heel of the other, they're, they're coming from the womb at the exact same time. And then there's the timing of this prophecy. Did you think about this? All of this was said before the birth of these children. So even before they were able to cry out, 
God had declared something very important about their destinies. This is something Paul picked up on and used as an illustration of the sovereignty of God in Romans chapter 9. He says in verse 11, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. What I'm saying is, the manner in which God revealed his will ensured that once it was fulfilled, fulfilled, no one could reasonably argue that it was a matter of coincidence. This was definitely God's doing. And in Isaac, you see an example of what people do when God's will is inconceivable to them and they don't really understand what's going on. Look at verses 27 and 28. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in his tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. See some favoritism starting here, something that would characterize Jacob later on with his sons. And Isaac, he favored Esau because, the explanation is in verse 28, he ate of his game. The Hebrew says literally, for the game in his mouth. And it's unclear whether that is a referring to Esau's mouth or Jacob's mouth. It could paint a picture of Esau as a kind of lion bringing home game in its mouth or bringing game to put in his father's mouth. Either way, it's a pitiful image and portrays um, Isaac as, you know, just someone who's not being fair and who's just loving one son superficially because of what, how he can benefit him in terms of putting food in his belly. Of Rebekah, she, she was guilty of favoritism as well. She loved Jacob, but it's an unconditional love, not hinging on any kind of criteria like putting game in her mouth or anything like that. As the story unfolds, it becomes clear that neither parent was ready to turn their lives over to God. God's, God's will was just too perplexing, too foreign to their own, and they had a hard time with it. They were feeling the tension between God's revealed will and his hidden will. He had told them that they would become a great nation, but it took them 20 years to bear children. And he told them that Contrary to their culture, the older would serve the younger, but he didn't reveal to them why that had to be. This kind of tension lives in all of us as well. We don't understand everything. We're left in the dark, and we wonder, is that good for us or not? Most of us think that it's not, but this mystery is really important. If you think about it, it's the mystery that causes us to trust God more. Would you trust God more if you knew everything that was going to happen? You might see that in the end everything's going to work out, and you see how it all works out, and you say, yeah, you know, I'm I'm trusting God through all of that. I can get on board with that. But do you really have to trust Him as much if you already know the end of the story? I don't think so. I think faith is greater when you're in the area of the unknown, where you live in the place of Abraham, where you go where he went, 
Not when you live the way Isaac did and how Jacob did in the beginning, trying to manipulate things and change things and cheat your way through this life. We may not understand God's plan until we're able to look back and see that His hand was on every event in our lives. I want to read you a quotation from Jerry Sitzer, who wrote this great book called The Will of God is a Way of Life. He says, What might seem at the time to be senseless, tragic, and meaningless will take on greater significance when we see what happens as a result. Only then will the apparent contradiction between God's revealed will and God's hidden will be resolved. So what do you do when you're in this time of perplexity and confusion? Well, first of all, you need to pray. Keep praying. We see Isaac and Rebekah doing that, at least, and, and that's a good thing. You'll later see Jacob rely on prayer more and more. Abraham had it right. He was a man of prayer. Continue to pray, and you will learn to adapt. You will see more about God's will through life. You will grow closer to Him and, and understand Him better with every prayer. So pray. Number two, trust that God can carry you through whatever it is you don't understand. You don't have to understand because someone bigger than you and smarter than you has it. So you learn to cast all your anxieties on Him knowing that He cares for you, 1 Peter 5, 7. And then, don't neglect what does make sense in the present time. There, there's got to be something that you know you should do. There's got to be something going on at the moment that you can work on, that you can change, that you can repent of, you can start to build, you can find some little part or piece of the big picture and not understand the whole thing, but understand that little piece and start working on that. So don't be paralyzed in fear or frozen in procrastination. Start working on what you do know at the moment. And eventually God will lead you through the rest of it. That's what you do. You pray, you trust, and you, you do what you can in the present hour. And eventually you'll come to know the full thing. And look back on it and see that God has done marvelous things. That's what we're going to see happening in Jacob's life. And through faith, that's what happens in all of ours as well. That's where I'm going to leave it today. Favored cheat, the perplexing will of God. We'll get into the next part of Jacob's life next time.